All right, well, today we're starting uh, a Christmas series. We, we kind of hit pause on the book of Acts last week. We got to about chapter 9 of Acts and thought that was a good spot to, to hold off for a few weeks to focus on the birth of Christ and prepare our hearts for Christmas this year. Um, every year that we tackle Christmas, it's always a little bit difficult for me to, to know where to go because it's such a familiar thing, right? We're all so familiar with the story. So how do you kind of make things fresh? And I don't know that I will do that. But um, this year, I'm, I'm going to try to take us through more of a topical approach to this rather than just looking at Matthew's account or Luke's account. We're going to kind of look at all of the accounts as much as we can uh, for the next few weeks and explore kind of the primary things that the birth of Christ points us to as we prepare our hearts this season. Um, and, and really, it's going to feel a little different maybe than what we are used to. We're not going to just camp in one passage for the next few weeks like we normally do. Uh, it might feel a little ping-pongy at some times, and I apologize for that because that's not our vibe here. But, um, but we need to look at some more kind of topical things, I think, to, to get the picture. Um, and so really we're going to look at three things. We've got three Sundays until Christmas. So this week we're looking at what it means for Christ to be our King and that aspect, something that we may not reflect on much. And we need to think about the kingship of Jesus, that he was born to be our King and what that means. So that's today. Next week, we're going to look at what it means for God to be with us in Christ, to be Emmanuel and that, that presence of, of God through Jesus and then Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll focus on the mission of Jesus and why he came to save us from our sins and how he accomplishes that. So that's kind of the trajectory we're going with. And uh, today, we're going to look at what it means for Jesus to be born a king. So as I was thinking about that, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that I'm probably one of the only people in this church that woke up early back in May to watch the coronation of King Charles III. Um, not even my wife woke up early for that. And uh, so I, I got up real early, watched the carriage go through the streets of London, all the ridiculousness, right? And I, I enjoy that. You might think I'm crazy. In fact, I can feel all your judgment coming at me right now. I can just feel it. And it's, you know, that, that's okay. You're free to judge me all you want. Um, <laughs> It, it was recorded, that's true. But I like watching those things live because you're just there with it, you know. Um, so I was walking through or list, watching through this and I, it just kind of combines a couple things. It combines the pomp and circumstance of England's upper crust, right? Something that I will never know or live in. And that's just interesting. But it also, from a theological standpoint, a biblical standpoint, there's so much rich meaning and theological significance in a coronation. Uh, the coronation in England hadn't happened for 70 years with Queen Elizabeth. So uh, most of us weren't alive when that happened. So this was interesting. But as I watched that service, it was a, it is a service. It's a worship service. It happens in a church, Westminster Abbey. It, it's presided over by the, by the leaders of uh, the Church of England. Um, but most significantly of all, that kind of struck me and was shocking to me, actually, as an American, was that the king had to publicly devote his life to living under the king of kings, Jesus Christ. That's so crazy to me. And I'm not saying that he's going to actually live up to that, right? He, he certainly won't. I don't think any of us 
do perfectly. We're all sinners. We all struggle. But I thought that was a really fascinating thing that the king of England has to say the things, at least they're in words publicly, that he's going to submit himself to Jesus as the king of kings. And that's just a fascinating thing. So whatever, take that for whatever you want. But what, what it ultimately did for me as I watched that service was it made me long for a day when the true king will come and will establish his kingdom here. And he has come and he will come again. Right? And that, that is really what Christmas is meant to, meant to do for us every single year. It's meant to remind us that the king has come and he will come again. So we look back at the king in his humility and we look forward to him in his glory. And, and I think that that's something that if we can continue to pivot our hearts to that, that there is a king over all kings, over all rulers, over all leaders of the earth, and that king is actually ruling and reigning in the world, and he is in charge of what happens, and he has a plan to get us through whatever we're going through, to get us to the end of uh, the, the, the end of it all to the glory of the kingdom of God established on earth. If we can keep reminding our hearts about that, I think we'll be happier. Uh, I think we'll be for, far more joyful, far more celebratory, far less anxious about the state of things because we, we have a king who is actually over every other king, who, who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And, and so, yes, there are earthly rulers and there's earthly leaders and there's kings and, and dictators and all kinds of bad men and bad women and good men and good women or whatever you want to say, leading the, the nations of the world. But all of them are under Jesus. And I think that's what is so vital in our time, especially as we enter into 2024, where it's just going to get wild. And we know it will because it's, it's, it's an election year coming up. Next month, it'll start an election year and it's going to be terrible. And uh, we're all going to hate it. But it's, but it's what... It's these rhythms that we need to continue to remind ourselves in the midst of there is a king and he is, he is in charge. And that's really what uh, Jesus' birth helps to point us to. We obviously don't have to just think about this at Jesus' birth, but this is a good time to do it. So uh, let's, let's start this, this way. As we turn our attention to the kingship of Jesus, we're going to do that through two passages. An Old Testament passage in Isaiah 9, and then a New Testament passage in Matthew 2. And there will probably be some others sprinkled in there to, to help supplement some things. But I want us to, to turn to Matthew's gospel primarily today because as we read the gospel of Matthew as a whole, the theme of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel and really the whole world. That's actually from the very start of the, the gospel of Matthew to the very end, the theme that runs through it. Jesus is king. And it starts in the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, which we would read and see as the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It is this list of names that we read and we're like, this is like reading the phone book. This is not engaging or interesting, really. It's, it's hard for us to kind of work through that because it's just a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce and all those things. Um, but there's a purpose in that genealogy at the start of Matthew's gospel. It is to show definitively that Jesus has the claim to the Davidic throne. 
The throne of David is his throne. The lineage of Jesus proves that point that he gets to sit on the throne of David. So it reminded me of a a movie I watched recently. Uh, I I watched it a long time ago and I just recently watched it again, uh, Braveheart. If you've ever watched Braveheart with Mel Gibson, classic movie, great movie. There's a scene in that where Robert the Bruce and all these other nobles of Scotland are in the middle of this war with England and they're trying to fight for their independence and they're all gathered in this castle and they're waving these papers around and and just going, oh, you know, screaming at each other. And what they're doing in that scene is they're trying to prove with their paperwork that they have the right to sit on the throne of Scotland in the event that they beat the English. And so they're all arguing for this power. And in a, in a sense, without the screaming and the waving of, of the arms, Matthew is doing something similar. He is showing us proof that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. So that's one thing he does. And then he also tells us in chapter two that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. And we're going to get into uh, that as we get there. But before we get into all the specifics of those things, I think it's good for us to set up some groundwork, look at some Old Testament foundation for what the kingdom of Christ would be, what it was promised to be, and and then we can then see how Christ fulfills those things. So we, we see all throughout the Old Testament prophets that God would send one day a king who would rule in righteousness from the throne of David. He would rule on the throne of David. And one of many examples of this is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. So that's where we're going to go first. Two verses, not terribly long, pretty familiar verses for us at this time of year. So let me read it. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in those two quick verses, we we are seeing that there's a promise of a son to be born, uh, a child to be given to us, where the government will rest upon his shoulder and he will have these characteristics, right, of being called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But what I want us to focus on is is the second verse there, the seventh verse of of chapter 9, where it gives us the characteristics specifically of the kingdom of God through Christ. Look at that again. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That one sentence or half a sentence tells us three things about the kingdom of Christ that are worth reflecting on today. The first is that the kingdom of Christ is increasing. The increase of his government, there will be no end. Christ's kingdom will never stop growing. The kingdom of God is ever expanding. Even when it doesn't feel like that, 
I think that's crucial for us, is that we only have a very narrow picture of the kingdom of God. We really do. We have a very narrow understanding of what God is doing. John Piper once said that, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. And even more than that, we can extrapolate that out beyond the personal to the global movements of God in the world and how many more things is God doing and how few of them are we aware of. But the truth is that the kingdom of God is ever increasing. That's actually the point of the book of Acts, which we've had the joy of looking at. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a verse. Actually, I think it was last Sunday. We saw a verse in chapter nine, which says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, which is another way of saying under the kingship of Jesus and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That is the point of Acts, is that the church is multiplying, it's growing, it's expanding, and it continues to to this day. Jesus also talks about this in one of the parables he teaches in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, again, Matthew's all about the kingdom of God, right? And so there's a whole stretch of about eight or nine parables in the middle of Matthew where Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God specifically. And in 13 verses 31 to 33, Jesus says this. He puts another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now the point of those two parables as he tells them back to back is to say essentially the same thing, that the kingdom of God begins small and ever increases as the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds that he's, at least of the seeds that they would have been familiar with in Christ's day, the small little seed, very insignificant, but it ends up growing into a tree to become the largest plant in the garden. That happens slowly and over time. And then he tells us in the second parable that it's like uh, a woman who puts uh, leaven, or we would call it yeast, into, into flour and makes dough, and then that spreads throughout the dough to make bread. So the kingdom of God continually works through the world and increases. So the kingdom of God is an ever-expanding, ever-growing kingdom. That's a good thing. We should be encouraged by that. The second thing that this passage tells us about the kingdom of God is that uh, it is a peaceful kingdom. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The kingdom of Christ, the hallmark of it is that of peace. It is a, a kingdom of security, of grace, of love. And actually that is also the point Jesus makes or one of the points he makes in the parable of the mustard seed where he says that the the plant grows to the point that it becomes a, a place where birds can make their nests. The imagery there, the picture there of birds being able to, to make their nests in its branches is that of it's not going to be disturbed. It's peaceful. There's, there's going to be joy in this. 
the kingdom of God is a place of peace. One day we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that the lion will lay down with the lamb. Two animals that would not normally be buddies. You don't see zookeepers putting them together unless the lion's hungry or something. Um, and so you, this is the picture that God is giving us of, of the kingdom, that the lion, a predator, and the lamb, prey, can be together in peace. That is not fully realized, obviously, this side of Christ's second coming. We're still in process there. But the church should resemble that as much as we can. Then the third marker here is that there will be no end at the end of the second, first half of seven. And then at the end of seven, it says, this time forth and forevermore. So the third marker is that the kingdom of Christ is eternal. It is not temporary. It is not just for here and now, though it is for here and now. It's not purely a future thing. The theologians of the, of the 16th century and 17th century, they began to articulate things like uh, the already not yet, that we are already in the kingdom of God, but it's not yet fully completely here. And that is, I think, the right tension to see, is that we have Christ in his kingdom, but it's not full and complete yet because it will happen when Christ returns. But the reality is, is that Christ's kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom, un unlike any other kingdom on the earth. No other human kingdom is going to last forever. No nation, as we would call it, right? We don't have a kingdom, but we have a nation. No nation, no country, no kingdom, whatever word you want to use in that, is going to survive forever. And, and actually what's interesting, is I did not know this until this week as I was studying through this, th this stuff, but the parable of the mustard seed is actually contrasted with a passage in the Old Testament in Daniel 4. And in Daniel 4, uh, the king of Babylon, the people of Israel are in exile. Nebuchadnezzar has Daniel and his friends all in captivity and the rest of Israel. And Babylon, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he doesn't understand the dream. And so he, he brings Daniel in to explain the dream to him. And, and here's what he says to Daniel. He says, As I, I saw in my dream, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and its and it was, there was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Sounds familiar. Sounds like the picture Jesus is painting for us. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw visions in my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Lest, let the beasts flee from under it and its birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Then Daniel interprets the dream later in that chapter and says, the tree you saw, it is you, O king. You have, become, you have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. This is the interpretation, O king. 
It's a decree of the Most High, which will come upon my Lord, the King. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to cut you down and your nation. And God did. God humbles him. God ultimately destroys Babylon. Babylon, as it existed then, doesn't exist now. The Assyrian Empire is gone. The Byzantine Empire is gone. The Roman Empire is gone. The British Empire is largely gone. Ultimately, every empire that has come and gone will be gone. And God will cut it all down. But not so with Christ. He will be an everlasting, eternal kingdom. So here's the question. Now, all that groundwork that we've done is if Jesus is the king and his kingdom is eternal, how should we respond to that? That's where we finally get to turn to the passage in Matthew 2. So if you want to turn there with me, and we won't spend a ton of time here because we're already getting, getting close uh, to time. But Matthew 2, pretty common passage around Christmas. We think about it a lot. It's, it's after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And here's what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of, of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so what is that passage? Probably one you've heard read many times in your life. What does this teach us about the kingship of Jesus and how we should respond to him? Well, I think that this passage is modeling for us three ways that we can respond to Jesus. At least three, but I think there's three clear ones. I'm not going to take them in necessarily the order they appear, but I'll take them in kind of the order of, of uh, how, how we should think of them. And the first way that we could respond to the kingship of Jesus is with indifference. Just sort of shrugging our shoulders not really caring. This is modeled in the way that the scribes and the chief priests that Herod brought in to ask the question about where Jesus would be born. This is largely how they responded to Jesus. 
they bring in the, the chief priests and the scribes, people who have been studying their Bibles for their whole lives. They knew enough of it to know where, where the Christ was going to be born. They had the right answer. They tell the wise men that he was going to be born in Judea. They quote the Bible to prove that point. And yet here's the thing. They don't seem to have any concern or interest at all in actually seeing if this is true. If the king of, G of the Jews is born. They know all the right things, but they don't have any motivation in their heart to see it for themselves. They don't go to Bethlehem. They don't travel with the wise men to go there. They sit in their intellectual ivory towers, totally content with the academic knowledge that they have, but not allowing it to actually reach their hearts and their lives. And obviously, I'm not someone who would ever say that we shouldn't care about learning. We should. That's how we grow to know more of Jesus. But it's not enough to just have intellectual or academic knowledge. We need to see it reach us in the heart, in, in the center of ourselves that will actually respond. The Bible says we should be hearers and doers of the word, meaning not meaning that we have to do, do, do to be saved, but meaning that what God calls us to should, should lead us to response. And these men who should have been the most excited of all, the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, should have been more excited for the Messiah to come into the world than anybody. And what they're doing is just going, well, this is where he'll be. I guess you can go see if you want. This is, this, th there is a massive chasm between what they know and how it changes them. It's a, it's a gap, it's a gulf that, can't, that they can't cross. This information that doesn't lead them to transformation. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 15 that we, uh, can, we can actually do nothing apart from him. That if we don't have a meaningful connected, life-giving relationship with Jesus as the branch is connected to the vine, we can do nothing of spiritual significance. And that's what we're seeing in these, these scribes and these chief priests, indifference. Just, they know the right things, but they have no movement whatsoever in their lives. So that's one way. You and I can be there too. Right? It's easy to look down our noses at people and go, well, they're awful and blah, blah, blah. But all of us have the propensity within ourselves to be indifferent, to just go, well, yeah, Jesus is fine, I guess. But that's not where he wants us to be. He wants us to be meaningfully connected to him and, and under him as the king. Another way we can respond to Jesus that this passage and the surrounding passage uh, points us to is hostility. We can also be hostile towards Jesus. This is modeled for us in King Herod. Now, King Herod in the passage I read, in the section that we read, um, doesn't seem super hostile, right? He's kind of like, he's troubled, it says. He's troubled. 
And that's that's kind of a, I think, a light way to say it as we look through the lens of what he does after this. But he, he does ask the wise men to go and to find Jesus and then to come back and tell him where he is. And he says, so that I can worship him as well. But this is actually just a giant trick. He's, he's playing a trick on these men in order to get the information he needs so that he can kill the baby, Jesus. Herod wants him destroyed. Herod, it, we, we may not know much about Herod from the Bible. We get some glimpses of him here, and he's obviously portrayed as a pretty awful person. But this, this actually is just the tip of the iceberg uh, on Herod. Herod was a, a psychotic man. He killed all of his rivals, anybody who could have a claim to the throne, including his own children, um, he he was he was a wicked dude, and he meant to kill Jesus, and we we actually see that in the in the next section of chapter two. Uh, it's a section that we call the killing of the innocents. It's because it says that in verse sixteen, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he figured out enough to go, okay, the kid's probably two years old or maybe a year and a half or maybe a year. Like it took the wise men a while to get to Bethlehem from where they were traveling from, probably from what was once known as Babylon or Iraq or Iran. That region is probably where they came from, uh, although that's just guesswork. But it would have taken them a year, perhaps a year and a half or two to travel there. And so he ascertained from them enough information to go, okay, the kid would have been two years old or younger, so let's just kill all the two-year-olds and younger. And, and that's crazy, right? We, we read that through our lens and go, well, that's nuts. Um, and it is. And it shows the heart of, of Herod in this, that he is, he's not just apathetic or indifferent to Jesus, he's hostile to him. Ultimately, Jesus escapes this because his parents were told about this by an angel, and they were able to escape to Egypt in time and then came back after this Herod died. Um, so that's the rest of chapter two. Um, but that, that's where, that's, that's the hostility we're seeing in this passage. Now, most of us, as we look at our own lives, are not going to be like that, right? We're not going to be hostile to the point that we want to just, you know, kill somebody like Herod. Uh, that, that's an extreme example, of hostility, admittedly. But we can be hostile to Jesus. We can outright reject him. We can refuse to trust in him. We, we can be antagonistic towards him and his people. And, and may God save us from that response. That's, that's a response none of us should want to have towards Jesus. Well, the third and final uh, response that we can have is obviously the wise men, which is worship. Worship can be defined as a life devoted and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Worship is not a Sunday morning thing, particularly it's an all of life thing, and Sunday morning fits into that. Worship is not merely singing songs before or after a sermon although it includes that. Uh, worship is a full life devoted and submitted to Jesus Christ. 
We worship Jesus as we submit to him and put our lives under his kingship. And I I know that submission is not something that as Americans we really like. We don't like the word. We don't want people to tell us what to do. Uh, There's an impulse in us for that. I'm not saying that that's entirely wrong, but it is wrong if it applies to the king of kings. We have to recognize that there are authorities that God has given to us as well, above us. And I think we all would know that in the, in the grand scheme of things, a world without any submission to any authorities would be a terrible world to live in. I don't think we actually want that, right? So I think if we thought about our, our natural impulse to go, I don't want to be under someone, that is a, that's kind of our natural go-to. But I think if we thought about that for just a few minutes, we would go, oh, actually, no, submission to leaders in the proper context is a good thing. It leads to life and peace, actually. In one just obvious and kind of out there example, it would be you break the laws of the nation and you go to prison and none of us want to do that, right? We like our freedom and so we stay within the lanes as much as possible. A more relatable example, I think, for those who have been parents know this, that we, we have rules for our children. We expect our children to obey those rules, not so that we can crank down on their lives and make them miserable, but because we know that by obedience to their parents, they can actually live the freest and most joyful life that we can give them. It's a good thing for parents to discipline their children and, and to set parameters for them. And we all know examples of, of kids who grew up without that structure. And most of us are like, eh, don't want that, right? Because it's not, it's not actually producing the kind of life that is joyful. But with the proper godly restraint on, on, on authority, there is life and peace and joy. And really, so it is with Jesus, Submitting to the Lord Jesus is not a drudgery. It is a life-giving, joyful thing. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, Paul says in Galatians. There are parameters under the Lord Jesus Christ, but those parameters are meant to give us life and freedom and joy. Jesus says it himself in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The way that we enter into that life that Jesus came to give us is as, as we enter into a submissive relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting him and committing our hearts to do what he says, to live the way he has designed life to be. And as we do that, we actually experience greater freedom and greater joy, increasingly so. And I think at the end of the day, all of us want that. But the path to that is through the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Christ. And that's what we should be devoting our hearts to have through faith. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, this morning and the opportunity we have to explore this topic this topic we don't always spend much time thinking about. And uh, 
I ask that, that your lordship, your kingship, the, the reality that you came into the world to be our king, to be the king of Israel and the whole world, would resonate in our hearts and that you would help us, God, to, um, to respond to you in faith, in grace. Um, we pray that you would help us to receive your gift and to live in newness of life that, you've came, that you came to give us. I pray for your help in that and I pray that as we respond to you through singing, as we respond to you through giving, as we respond to you through partaking of your, your supper today, uh, that we would be um, just again and again reminded of your goodness, your grace, your love, and the freedom you have for us under your lordship. Help us, God. Move us by your spirit as you would lead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.